0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: We make USAA insurance to help you save. Take advantage of discounts when you cover your home and your ride. Discover how we're helping members save at USAA.com/slash
0: bundle. USAA. Restrictions apply.
1: You're listening to Pop, The History Makers with me, Steve Blame. John Watts is a prolific songwriter, releasing 20 albums over a career which has spanned over 40 years and under the names of his band, Fisher Z, his own name, John Watts, J.M. Watts, and The Cry. His lyrics are a critical commentary, both social and political, of our times. I suppose that's not surprising for someone who loves to observe people, and who was once a clinical psychologist. John's a fascinating character. He has the charm, as many true artists have, but an added measure of honesty about himself. In this two-part interview, I hope you get a picture of this exceptional artist. So about three years ago, I think it was, it may have been two, but because it's been a, you know, a difficult period, I, I, my years are sort of mixing into one another. But I think it was three years ago, we bumped into each other in Hamburg in an Italian restaurant. That's right. You turned round to me and you said you were going on tour and here's your card send a message, come and see you on tour, which I did. I went to the cantina in Cologne and watched you, and I'll talk about that later. But what was interesting for me is I turned back to my guests And one of them, Julian, I went to university with between 1977 and 1980. And he went, oh, my God, that was Fisher's Ed. (laughs) That was John Watts. And I went, yeah. And he went, that was was my first gig. I loved it. (laughs) And that was in, I think that was in Camden. He said it was in North London. He couldn't actually identify exactly where it was around that. Dingwalls. uh, Dingwalls. Dingwalls. That was it. That's what he said. Yeah, it was around that era. What was brilliant then is that we went into a conversation about the era in which we grew up, which yeah. formed us in many ways. And so I want to sort of I have to take you right back, but I want to talk about that era in, in specifically during this. But really, I also want to talk about how you were brought up and how your what your parents installed in you. And really what you took from them and also what you ignored from them. Because for me, this was really an impactful period of my life Mm. with my parents. So I just wondered what your upbringing was like.
0: Well, it was, I was, I come from the village, which is outside the military academy at Sanders. So the village, well, Sanders town is about 30,000 village now, Um, college town. So um, my father uh, was um, between business and military. There's a lot of military in my family, all the way back. Soldiers and singers and performers in my on my father's side, um, and my mum's side is more sort of country um, area. But um, my mum was a my mum was a primary school teacher. My dad, for most of my you know once uh, most of my sort of childhood, was uh, a motor insurance underwriter, but he was also a liberal politician were
1: they were they present in your life and I mean that in the sense that I had a father who was physically present but he wasn't present and that had that also na- you know naturally had an impact on on me uh, later but were they actually present in your life as parents around you supportive and all the things that we
0: imagine and not always are true yeah <laughs> they were I mean my dad was working in London but he was like Whenever he came home, his, his big thing was the kids. He used to spend a weekend with his kids because he'd leave at like six in the morning and get home at eight at night. And it was a big thing. What annoyed my mother was my dad was like one of the kids. She wanted a John Wayne, my mum. So in what way was he like the kids? Well, he just he was, he was very funny and very playful. Um, my mum used to like driving. So we'd go to the seaside in a, in a mini My mum would drive. Me and my sister would be sitting in the front seat under what was not a seatbelt in those days. And My dad would be covered with teddy bears and things in the back, making us laugh.
1: Now, socially and politically, the 70s and 80s were... They were our formative years, I'm presuming. I'm saying as, but they Mm -hmm. were definitely my formative years. And and I think from your music, you see that they are as well. Um, The 70s were a period of social upheaval um they were a period of uh where the where the workers is in this sort of general term were put upon um and uh the 80s were in many ways although they're sort of always looked at in this sort of glamorous wonderful era of you know the most amazing music and all this stuff Mm -hmm. but they were shit i mean there was racism homophobia sexism you know there was Such uh, political and social upheaval, it was unbelievable. So what, during that era, formed you, do you think? What events formed you?
0: Well, in the 70s and 80s? Yeah. Well, I mean, for instance, um, hitchhiking in America at 21. I went to America with with another guy who ended up being in the band, and I spent all my money in the first four days, and I was there nine weeks. And so having had a relatively cosy and friendly and encouraging upbringing, I suddenly had to work out how to get across to the other side of America for $7 and then busk to make money to come back. That was quite formative. And then also my training in um, clinical... So what psychology. happened,
1: just to take to, to go into that then, if you're, you know, if you actually have no money and you, mm. you have to busk, you have to meet and make contact with people, don't you? Even yeah. if, it's, if it's on a musical level, yeah, sure. you know,
0: or on a personal level. So, what what stories do you have of that time? What do you yeah, actually remember? Um, well, I remember arriving. I, I was busking on Fisherman's Wharf, opposite Alcatraz, uh, at that stage. And um, I'd done. Well, I think I'd done two years. of, I'd done two years of university by then. So I was doing music and making music. That was quite good. But two of the most interesting things were I was a rugby player while I was at while I was at in. When I was busking down there, I met some people who went to the University of California, Berkeley, and they were playing American football. And uh, I was looking at what they were doing, and the, they were their kickers were kicking things over the, over the posts. And uh, I said, that's easy. They said, no, it's not easy. We get paid lots of money. I said, it is easy. I'm, I'm a rugby fullback. I can do that any day of the week. And They said, can you? And I said, yeah. And so I did. They said, Jesus, you can get a scholarship over here for doing that. And also, tackling people, they had lots of gear and armor. I didn't. I could knock people over without armors. That was quite funny. But there was things like that. After that, I hitchhiked all the way up the west coast of the States, all the way up to Seattle, and across to Spokane and all over the place. And when I was there, I stayed in a house. The other memory, I stayed in a house with a lot of Vietnam War veterans, which was quite influential. They were only two or three years older than me, but they'd been to Vietnam. And that was, they were like 100 years older than me. And there was a guy, I remember underneath the wooden veranda every time a car or any kind of machine turned up he just dived under it and hid and so I had those kind of experiences and I had a lift with a very mad hippie art teacher and she was completely off her head on drugs and ill and so I drove up the 101 myself with a gear with an old column shift um car which I had to keep a large orange bottle full of water on to keep in gear so those kind of things were quite interesting that was the American thing then I came back to college for a bit and, um, and we were playing punk clubs at night. And then I was working with psychopaths in the daytime in mental hospitals as a clinical psychologist. And I was working with psychopaths at night in clubs. It was really funny. And then we went straight from that to, to, to doing very, very successful. It was very odd. I didn't do a, I didn't do a normal formative 20. I didn't, do, I didn't do like, I don't know, 20 to 25 like most other people.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there because in America you were with yeah. Stephen, I presume, in America, yes, because Steve. you met him at university, yeah.
0: Yeah, Steve gone yeah.
1: Yeah. So in in America, by meeting these uh Vietnam vets mm. who were, as you say, just a couple of years older, but their experiences yeah. uh right. were far more uh traumatized than than your experience would have been. What yeah. what did they relay to you and how did that impact you in terms of Understanding
0: the world a bit better. Well, I think um consequence I mean coming from a military family, I was at the I was the head chorister at the Royal Military Academy in Sandhurst. And when if you're a head boy in that choir, it's for a start the singing's unbelievable. Secondly, every column, every pillar in that cathedral is covered with the dead of the first world war. The different regiments, every and I knew lots of them by heart because you'd read them when you're reading beanos and stuff when people were doing sermons. But the point about that was, I was always very aware of um, things military, the consequence of things like the First World War, and so therefore, when I, I tied that across, obviously, when I met the, all the Vietnam War vets, I mean, at that stage, um, I mean, that was only when well, let's see, that was seventy, was seventy three, seventy four? I mean, that was only seventy five. It was ridiculous. I mean, it's, it, um, there was still um, many of the. Um, First World War veterans around and all sorts of stuff. The only thing was, it was a bit like being in um, one of the famous, um, it felt a little bit like being in the Deer Hunter because it was so weird. Their reality was so weird. And for instance, they say, you haven't got any boots. You haven't got any boots. And we were going out, I was picking fruit and making money up there, I think. I said, what do you mean I haven't got any boots? They said, there's snakes out there. There's snakes out there. I didn't believe them. And I I saw slithery things around the place. So it was bizarre. It it felt an, an unreal world.
1: I mean, you mentioned clinical psychology and working mm. in clinical psych- psychology. What yes. did that uh, allow you to understand about yourself?
0: Um, I think, I don't know. I, I didn't go in for that reason. Most, a lot of people who go to study psychology want to find out about themselves. I wanted a sandwich course that would allow me to um, do all the music I wanted to do. So therefore I did the course over four and, over four and a half years. I did the usual degree, but I'd worked with psychopaths I'd worked with severely disturbed 16-year-old kids and I'd worked on a venture playground. So I was ready to go out and work. It was, it was a working degree and it was a way, it was the way of financing my music that was interesting. I wasn't looking to find out stuff about myself. I was looking to see a weirder world. I mean, I, I, I found working with the psychopaths for six months, just extraordinarily stimulating. I wonder- well, for the most part, there were psycho- psychopaths, sociopaths. They were extremely, creative people very much like me and in, in their attitudes to things it's just that there was an element of self-control that disappeared for about five percent of their lives and that's when they got into trouble apart from that they were great fun great but guys. isn't that true about politicians as well
1: aren't you know uh, aren't you i politicians people in the public eye often mm. i mean i'm not anymore really but the people in the public eye are have a sociopathic side to them I mean you know I only got to say the word Trump and then we we confirm that but I don't think it's just the 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 peak of of the sociopaths I Mm. think it's like across the board so isn't it also something where you can understand these people I don't know if you understand them a little better but you can see what motivates them and you can sort of understand them in that way
0: yeah, sure. I mean, there's, there's a, as as with performers, there's attention seeking insecurity. If you have to need, I mean, I, I'm more comfortable playing in front of 20,000 people than I am going into a party where I don't know anybody. I've just always been like, I'm quite shy in that sense. I, I, I find that, you know. Why are those two things different? Um, well, I, I think it's the element of performance and entertainment. When we, one thing that shaped again, my performing you were referring earlier to those shows in the late in the 70s and early 80s my first um big major tour we we supported wilco johnson and the solid senders after he'd left dr feelgood and he was in his his um stage persona was quite a psychotic one i found that very interesting the my heroes were not rock musicians ever my heroes were people who approached were poets or andy warhol or the nearest thing to music, I suppose, was the, was the Velvet Underground. I, I liked people that crossed over between music and art and film, and were artists in the almost avant-garde would be the wrong word. Certainly, quite a bohemian culture was what I was interested in. Um, when you go up on stage, I mean, I always remember my my ex-wife. We were joking about this we, um, when we were going out to dinner together recently, and she said she just remembers when we used to play places up in the West End in London when I was twenty. Um, I was very noisy on a stage, but she always remembers trying to get me to settle down enough to eat a burger in the Swiss Centre before before she went back. And I was always thought, "I'm going to lose my voice." Said, "No, you're not, you know," and all these kind of bits and pieces. I think that the stage, the 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 stage thing, requires an absolute commitment, a hundred percent commitment of focus. In the rest of my life, I find that hard one thing that my um, family and close people will say about me is that's annoying many performers don't stop performing when they come off stage Um, and they don't stop attention seeking when they come off stage and they don't stop monopolizing the conversation when they come off stage and it's a lifelong thing for me to try and get a bit of a handle on that one but basically the stage persona is basically me it's just a a little amplified really
1: You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Were you were you then comfortable at the beginning when um, Fisher's Ed um, achieved success? Was that measure of fame, in any sense, comfortable, or did you find it find it alienating? you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
0: um i didn't assess it very well at the time i mean in a period of two years we went from nothing to selling about two million albums and my story was at that point people kept saying you're a rock it's a rock star and i just really didn't like that label I wanted to be known as an artist i always thought that we were somewhere on the spectrum of art we weren't high art but we were somewhere there and the all the cliched things to do with that i have kicked against which is why i left it at the point it was enormous and and i've been never been near that sort of level since because most people have a natural career trajectory that goes up stays at a peak and comes down i've jumped out of it on many occasions changed names done lots of things and i mean musically musically i've never compromised business i'm a hopeless i've had eight managers all of which quite like me in historically but they think i'm unmanageable and your son is your manager today well he was no he was my he stopped about two years ago just
1: before so COVID. he was the seventh
0: he was the best <laughs> he was the best by mile the point is that with him in the end you can't have father and son working together in that sense i know Weller did with his dad but the type of characters we are eric eric is a super super sensitive person And I said to him in the end, was it just me that put you off it? He said, no, no, no. It it, it was a business that he couldn't feel comfortable in. He stepped in to to save, well, not just save it, but to build the career up again, which he did. Until COVID started, he was doing very well. But at the moment, I'm still forming a new team to try and make it work as well. Now, you mentioned
1: um, the Velvet Underground. You mentioned... um... Lou Reed and obviously that sort of John Cale fluxus you know art area is is an important thing and you talked about poetry and that yours is a combination between poetry musicianship and performance um do you think that well, words have obviously played an incredible role in your life. When, when mm. was the first time that you really understood what your voice is? And I
0: mean that in the sense I'm a writer I mean, and most, I know what the voice is. Yeah. Well, I mean, what I've discovered overall, first of all, is that I'm, I'm much more of a writer than I'm a musician, really. I mean, I can sing well, I can play, but that's not the point. Um, um, what's strange for me is that 95% of the music, of, of the stuff that I've sold, has been to people who don't understand the words, and I'm a word person which is a little bit of a contradiction in terms. Um, I always liked, I was, as a kid, they were worried about me because I observed and wrote about it rather than joined in. I never joined in. I'd be on the edge of the playground. I'd be on the edge of there, unless there was any kind of sport, which I was good at, in which case I'd watch them for a bit, be invited in, smack the ball around the place, impress their parents and run off. But, you know, um, basically I, was, I just loved observing things and writing things down. Um, when everybody else in their 11, 12 year old were writing, they're asked to write an essay or do something. I would do it, but I would prefer to do it in rhyme, for instance. Um, at the age of 15, when we had a choice of to specialize in subjects, I went to a funny, funny, modern grammar school, which became a big comprehensive school that became lots of things. My English teacher said to me, well, you're going to you're you going to do you obviously do English literature for a level. I said, no. I said, I'm not going to do English. I'm not going to do music. I'm not going to do art, because I don't want anybody to teach me anything. I am going to do maths, maths, physics, chemistry and computers that I don't like, which is what I did. And she said, John, she said, you're the only kid I've ever taught who I think will be a writer. That's amazing. That was was a really great affirmation at that stage, to be honest. That was 15 then.
1: Yeah, I mean, we searched for confirmation in our lives yeah. because it does yeah. help propel us yeah. forward and you know I sort of mentioned I'm a writer as well and if I get far in a competition or I win a competition these days mm-hmm. you know I mean it gives me the impetus to say to myself okay yeah. one day I'm, uh, this is going to work and um, as a writer of lyrics and performing to an audience which has English as a second language which you mentioned. Um, and there is sort of a dichotomy. There is some sort of yeah. weird thing going on there. Um, where do you get the confirmation from, or is it for you something that is so within you today that you don't need it anymore?
0: I don't need it for that. But what is interesting, it has been an issue for me in the past. For instance, um, when um, yeah, I mean the, the use the the use of lyrics. I believe that lyrics and songs. That, that basically most songs shouldn't make any sense as poetry or as writing separate from songs. They should only work... The best songs work just with the music. So I've always felt I'm too, much too wordy for songs, generally speaking, and you get you tend to get more wordy. The affirmation is based on the idea... People who study... They st- if they, if English is their second language, they look into the lyrics much more careful, carefully than the English or the Americans do, and they look for much more. And also... Mike's impression, yours probably too, because you've, you've worked right across the European spectrum, is that people take, if you like, pop culture um, as part of the art spectrum, much more much more than English people do. There's a big separation between different areas. Whereas, again, that you get serious, serious journalists who will talk to you about pop lyrics. But, it, but essentially, I know I can write. I'm quite happy with that. My thing's been the other way up, and in in as much as I tend to have put writing so much down the middle of the, my life, that my my lesson is yes, I know I can do that. Um, I've been trying to get better at the, get better at a personal life. <laughs>
1: That's always a difficult one a think, for anyone. I don't think we should go there. <laughs> um, mm. the, the, what do you wish to, uh, or what have you always wished to achieve? Um, with your words, with your lyrics? Because there's always been such a strong message in them.
0: mm -hmm. Well, for me, lyrics shouldn't tell people what to think, but they should make people think about certain areas. Um, Overall, what I want from my words is, and the same with my music, many people of my generation complain about streaming, they complain about that. I can really be valid, because I'm not rich. The people that are very, very rich moan about this. The, the, all, the, all my contemporaries who've made millions live next door to Sting. Um, I don't do that. I live in a little flat, which I still don't own. So I've, I can justifiably say this. I'm very happy. What I want above all things, for so my words and music, is for as many people as possible to listen to it. I don't care if they pay for it. doesn't matter a monkeys to me. The, the idea that, they, that, that something that you write is... Well, the whole principle of art, we go right the way back to the top. Art, for me, in an ideal world, is a unique view of the world from somebody. And if you're very lucky, your, your, well, your, your view appeals to a universal audience. And that's what, for me, it's all about. The era in
1: which you began your career, as it were, in, in, mm. in music, um, was sort of the, the punk era where the punk era felt like an era where it was probably a lot easier to go and gig and to be crap at the beginning and to build your talent on stage um, than it is today. What was it like then? And what do you feel that actually gave you as a performer? Because it's very different back then to a lot of performance today.
0: What's very odd about the punk thing was that, first of all, what differentiated Fisher's Ed? We were art punks. We were like XTC or we were, you were, know, that sort of area or Talking Heads. We were more arty punk types. The thing that was funny was performance as such was frowned upon, if you remember, by the punks. It was frowned upon to be able to play a bit. It was frowned upon to perform. My heroes, the people I used to go and watch as a 15-year-old, I, I went to the rock concerts, but I went to watch George Melly whenever I can go and, could go and see him. Um, Because I like, I I have a connection. I've got a a second cousin, a great uncle, who was a a big star pre-war in the music hall, a guy called Teddy Brown. And he used to play a drum kit and a xylophone at the same time. He weighed weighed 24 stone. And if you blow me up with a pump, I look like him, except for the beard. And um, I've always been keen on that. And I've always been very keen on the bohemian culture of Berlin, where you have performers standing up against terrible political ideologies. I like the kind of slightly sleazy side. And one thing that relates to everything you've said in the, in the interview is I always felt so abundantly normal. You'd see all these weird people. I like the weird people. I like Bally in his being weird. Peter Gabriel, when he dressed up as a cancer cell any, anything like that really appealed to me. And I thought I'm too normal. What's happened to me over a period of time is I've found that I'm not special, but I'm not normal. And ju- I'm just not. And I wish I'd have known that when I was 25. Also, I wish I'd known I was good looking when I was 25. It would have been a great advantage. <laughs> when, you say, <laughs> when you say that, isn't it the most, isn't it the people that think they're the most normal that are the most abnormal? Maybe that's it. Maybe. And also remember, I've been working with psychopaths and people attacking me. When when we played punk clubs and these other bands, I'd say, oh, this guy tried to burn my ankle with a cigarette. You think you pull it? Today, I fought off a bloke in a kitchen who was trying to put a broken bottle in my eye. Do you know what I mean? I just thought, this is, I, I tell you what, that was quite interesting. That's a very relevant point. I found it hard to take a lot of the the showbiz and stuff seriously because I've been working with serious people. I mean, even the background I talked about, I, I've spent time with Vietnam War vets. I've been dealing with psychopaths. I've been dealing with kids that were, when I was only 22, on venture playgrounds, kids who were 15, 16, that would steal everything of mine. So in, 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 in the era of, of not-so-PC-dom, we I, I was in a position where I, I would be shaking a, a black kid upside down who was 14 to shake my money out of his hair. And it was quite acceptable, and he didn't mind. I went back to playing darts and pool with him afterwards. I mean, that was just the way it was. And also, we played football with these big 16-year-old kids who were absolute hooligans. And the only way we could actually get could relate to them was kick the shit out of them because they respected that when we played football. Oh, we, you know, they, they'd get nasty with the younger kids, and we'd sort of be playing with these big kids. i sort of trip a very large guy up, and he'd go sprawling across the – he said, you can't do that, sir. I said, of course I, of course I can. You're a big thug. He said, you just kick me. I said, yeah. That's what happens. That's the way it is. And I, I did very well, actually, up there. I was, I was promoted. When I got, took the job, I actually took it – when I came back from America, I couldn't take reality. Upsbridge just didn't have it. So i went up and worked in london and adventure playgrounds in camden and what happened was they asked me what i was studying so i said psychology right i didn't tell them i hadn't got a degree they didn't take me out because i looked older they put me in they put me a, they made me an assistant to start with and then they made me a playground leader by the time i left i was i was 22 i was i was supervising four or five different adventure playgrounds it was ridiculous absolutely ridiculous and I, then i went back to university afterwards And by the time when I left, I left university. We signed a record contract four days after I left university. So it was very weird.
1: Part two of this John Watts interview is also online. Don't miss that. And don't forget to connect to me on Instagram. Comment or vote for this podcast. It all helps. And look out for more interviews on POP, the History Makers. See you soon.